we have this really wild story. Um, I'm going to tell you guys, though, with the pastors being away, it's story time. And I'm going to talk about one of them that's not here, Pastor Lorne. He's a friend of mine. I've known him for a long time. And one of the reoccurring things with Pastor Lorne that I'm always surprised by is that guy has like zero pop cultural understanding of anything popular. <laughs> anything popular. Like I have, I have children. I have a little reader. Uh, Amelia read Harry Potter like as soon as she could because she heard about that because it's a phenomenon, right? So then she saw the movies because it's a phenomenon. It's a big thing. Uh, Pastor Lorne is all banged up with his nose. He's having his surgery. And I'll tell you, that dude is having the hardest time with recovery. Stand still. The guy has come in repeatedly. And I'm like, dude, you're okay. It, go back. Go back. Because he had this big surgery, right? It's really hard for Lorne not to do that. So he called me one time just saying how bored he was having to be laid up. And he says, you know what? I should watch something. What should I watch? One, that's offensive to ask me. What would you just assume? It's true. I'm an enthusiast. I like to like things. Um, so there isn't something in pop culture that people are not like have the thing about. I'm like, what is that? And I want to see it. So Pastor Lauren says, uh, what should I watch? I'm like, well, one, Harry Potter. Like, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, yeah, I haven't seen that. And I was like, of course he hasn't. Hasn't read that either. And then I was like, you know what? This is a popular one in our house because my daughter read um, The Hobbit. She loves Tolkien, and she's been re-watching the Lord of the Rings because, well, she's watching it. I'm going, these movies really hold up. Because when they came out, that was something my brother was excited about. He had read Tolkien, and I'm like, have you read or watched any Lord of the Rings? He goes, nope. I'm like, unbelievable. <laughs> well, watch those. But uh, I have to say, uh, maybe there is something to my being like into those things that has colored my perception then of scriptures because I'm really into stories. I'm really into this exciting narrative. I'm into, if, if you like something, just tell me. I'll probably check it out because I'm like, great, great, consuming information. This is great. And uh, what happened was I read this gospel lesson of the gates of Hades. You know, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it and maybe it's because i recently watched lord of the rings but i am just imagining this big white city right i'm thinking of this city that's facing the darkness that is mordor right uh and there's these big black gates and behind them are goblins and orcs and they're all gonna take over the world if this city doesn't stand up to what's coming i'm like oh man i love look how dramatic the bible is I know. Yeah, this baby gets it. And the, I also think, though, beyond the pop cultural reference of this fiery inferno, Mount Doom, you know, the connections of the Black Gate, pits of lava, fiery pits of unpleasantness, it's awful. Culture also sometimes tells us that there's sort of this battle happening between this virtuous church versus a world of wickedness, you know? And... I don't know if it's fair. Does anybody else kind of fall into this? When you hear the story, when you hear in these words, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Do you also see this great city, you know, like fending itself off, defending itself, defending the world from evil? Does anyone else see that? That's a popular understanding, a very popular understanding, something that 
has defined the church for a long time, about the church exists as this bastion of love and mercy against all this ash and fire. There's this good thing. And I just don't know if that is accurate. I don't know if that's a fair interpretation. Perhaps my love of this pop culture fantasy stuff is clouding my vision. Pastor Lauren is very fortunate. He doesn't have this cloudiness, right? He, uh, this story is great. It ta- let's, I think it's helpful maybe to talk about context. It says at the beginning that uh, they were in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said this. Caesarea Philippi would have a lot of Romans. They would have a lot of Gentiles. So a lot of different gods, right? Like a lot of different beliefs, Roman culture. And he would have been in front of the literal place where you'd offer like prayers, where you can honor the gods, which is literally called the Gate of Hades, which is a real place. So we're imagining Hades, this fiery pit of unpleasantness, but he's in talking about this great, big, massive construction, a great wall, something that would never be overcome. It's a great, admirable, admirable thing that you can go, wow, look at that building. Look at, look at this wall. Look at this way. Look at this gate. It's incredible. It's overwhelming. But Jesus then says in front of this wall, who do people say that I am? And we get the answers, you know, some say John the Baptist. And then he asked Peter, and we get this famous quote from Peter, which I think we might overlook again. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. We hear that and we go, duh, J-man, we're in a church, of course he's Messiah. But no, at this time, Saying someone is the Messiah is really also a socio-political statement about the world turning upside down. What's Jesus saying? The last are going to be first, right? He's saying those who are hungry will be fed, right? He's saying those that are wounded will be bound up. The broken will be bound. Jesus is the beginning of a complete reordering of society. Peter is not saying a small thing. Peter's saying a huge and bold thing that right now the world is about to change because you, Jesus, right here in front of me, are the Messiah. You are the son of a living God. Who? Not to be missed, not to be overlooked by us, people of God, that we should also be motivated by that incredible thing. So, I think of that, of him saying, yes. Jesus responds, yes, I am. He says, don't tell anybody, but he did. Um, he says, yes, I am, and the gates of Hades even will not prevail against it. And we hear again that sort of like gate of hell, Hades, fiery pits of unpleasantness. But he's talking about this big thing they're in the shadow of. Not even something so big as this rock construction, this beautiful, well-done thing can stand a chance in the wake of what is coming. Big. It's really big. Mark Allen Powell once said said something. He's a, a Matthew scholar, and he says this text is really formative, and it's been formative for me then because of this question he asked. A little more a statement. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Gates don't attack, he said. Gates don't attack. 
So my image of these white city fending off all this wickedness, the idea that the world is full of such wickedness and the church is the only thing that can, it's defending itself to these great walls because God will protect it, is actually not at all what Jesus is talking about. In fact, he's talking about something so powerful, so great, that even this wall will never stand a chance. This gate will not stand a chance in the light of what's coming. It also is for the church this declarative statement that we are to be a movement, not just a city on the hill, not just standing there stagnant, but a moving, motion-filled, action-oriented organization of light and love. We actually have this for little kids. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. What does it say about this little light? You can bring that everywhere and it's going to show light. So where are we called to bring this light? Beyond the walls, into the gates of Hades, beyond those gates, because they don't stand a chance in the wake of what is to come. That's a kind of confidence that Peter is espousing, that Jesus is like, yes, this is the attitude with which I'm going to build something. I wonder, do we have the same enthusiasm? I don't know. It sounds like a critique, but I want us to realize how big of a thing it is that we know that God means to change the world. That doesn't mean that there are times when we suffer, where we, where we suffer and people say, uh, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Well, that's ridiculous. I have definitely been given things more than I can handle. Anybody else? Show of hands who's been given more than they can handle. Yes. So what are we talking about? God, though... In this statement, God is not overwhelmed. We can be. Absolutely. Our hearts have broken when we've been overwhelmed. Our hearts have broken for people when they have been overwhelmed. But the assurance here in the Messiah statement, this idea that the world is about to change, is that the worst thing is not the last thing. And in fact, the last thing is secured. The noble is pure. The the mission is pure. This promise is noble. It's assured that God will prevail. That's a kind of confidence that just flabbergasts me. I, though, think it does exist here in the world. Um, You guys have probably seen this kind of confidence, too, that God means to save the world and that really the tomb is still empty. Nobody crammed Jesus back in there. Death has still been defeated. Have you ever... I'll, I'll tell you a story. My son Harvey who is eight, started baseball. And the confidence of this kid is staggering. Borders on arrogance. But he's like, I'm going to be so good at this. He'd never done this before. And I'm like, Ugh. So what are their games? They get pants. <laughs> like, they are embarrassed. Him and his team are just getting walloped. And I'm like, oh, he's coming face to face with the reality that they are not that good at this. And afterwards, I'm a parent who's expecting to have that talk about, you know, you got to practice, you got to stick to it. I'm imagining the kid who's like, this is just, oh man. Harvey's not known for his stick to itiveness, you know, what eight year old is. <laughs> and he's coming to this, he's at the end of the game, and I'm like, let's go. We're, here it comes. Here's the sadness that he's going to have. And I go, hey, Harv, how are you? He goes, good. <laughs> and I go, oh, go- good. How was the game? He goes, fine. 
And I was like, you guys lost pretty bad? He goes, oh yeah, we got beat real bad. And I go, yeah. So how are you feeling? He goes, fine. I got some goldfish, which is awesome. And I was like, sure. Uh, any other thoughts on this? He's like, nope. Because to him, who cares? It's baseball. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You're going to come play again next week. And that's something we run into all the time, that kind of confidence and assurance that comes from somebody understanding that the game's already happened. It's fine. It's okay that we lose sometimes. It's even, I know as hard as it is, as somebody who has, it's hard to suffer. But that's not the last thing. We are a people that know the end of this story is God's love. What does that mean for us as a church? What does that mean for our courage? What does that mean for our ambition? What does that mean for our like ability to be a people of light, promise, peace, and hope when we know that the worst thing is not the last thing? We are powerful with that. We are able to change the world. And for that promise that is noble, for that promise that is assured, I give thanks to God. For a God that can travel all the way to the end, even to death and back, to the cross, to the tomb, and back and say, don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. I'm with you. Even to the ends of the earth. And beyond that, you are loved. Jesus loves you. So do I. And that's something for us to remember. Amen.